It's a special treat for you. It's a bonus episode with me, Matt, and Amber, the adults of Chapo Trap House. Let's be honest. The grown folks. <laughs> yeah. But um, this is this is interesting, actually, because originally we had planned to do uh, sort of a, a bonus episode where we would talk to Amber about uh, this guy, Mark Fisher, and his book, uh, Capitalist Realism. But... I guess it's now the uh, the difficulty of planning shows in uh, times such as these is that they are almost instantly rendered irrelevant by uh, major and stunning events that seem to be happening at a pretty fast clip these days. So we should we're going to segue into it later because it's actually important and connects with a lot of what's going on right now. Yeah, thankfully it's germane, and yeah. we wanted to start doing, like, you know, reading recommendations, but, like, had we started with, like, I don't know, the 18th of Brumaire or something, like, <laughs> right. it would have been like, well, we have to table this, but... Like, you know, on the episode where we did the, the, the pre-recorded uh, call-in show, like, one of the serious questions we got were people asking us for book recommendations about sort of how to understand neoliberalism or what it is. And that, you know, as luck would have it, Amber was like, aha, I have a recommendation. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a very good one. But before we get there, uh, we're recording this on, on Sunday right now. And before we get to there, like, you know, we just have to talk about uh, straight away what happened last night, uh, all, you know, at JFK, at Logan, at Dulles, and elsewhere in the country. So... I don't know. Uh, where, do you, where, do you, where do you guys where do you guys want to start with that? Uh, I mean, first of all, it was awesome. Yeah, I mean, it was. I was genuinely overjoyed yeah, seeing it happen. I was like, moved. I, I was really. I felt emotion for sure. For it is embarrassing yeah. for. I feel like I'm becoming Feelings a normie. Are gross. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Feelings suck, but I had quite a lot of them yeah. seeing yeah. everybody at JFK last night. Yeah, people I never expected to show up to a protest, you know, showed up to. Yeah, which, definitely. Which incredibly exciting. We're all going to be posting inspirational Facebook memes pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with Minions. I think that's going to be my wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah, a Minion and he's waving and says, seize the means of production. Yep. Min- I'm going to have a big sign that says, Minions welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, again, like I... I feel uh, overmatched because I just feel like sincerity is really the only way I can and can respond to this. Like I, I, I thought it was just amazing uh, and exactly what we need right now. Like a hundred percent. Yeah, and and exciting in, in a way that I, you know, I'm not. You know, I've participated in a lot of protests and things over the years, uh, but. Honestly, most of them don't really do anything. They're not usually very effective. I mean, and these were effective yeah. almost immediately. Yeah, um, and I, I think for two reasons. One was like the sheer mass chaos of that number of people, mm-hmm. uh, and two, and I this cannot be, you know, er- erased from I think our, our evaluation of the efficacy. It was the taxis. Right, I mean, the New York City uh, ta- Taxi Commission. Yeah, because, I mean, th- 
there's this idea that, you know, the power cannot ignore, you know, masses of people in the street. Yeah, they can. They do all the time. I mean, there are huge demonstrations that accomplish absolutely nothing all the time through no fault of the crowd or whatever. But what they cannot ignore is labor refusing to work and shutting everything into chaos. And I think that's so 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 interesting, like almost as an accident that that this began to be focused around JFK because and airports where people were you know being detained. And let's be honest, these are people with green cards yeah, being yeah, yeah. detained. Like yeah. this is. I mean, appalling and sickening on a level that I think a lot of people aren't used to, but they better get used to it. And I think the interesting thing about airports is that it does prevent present such an interesting choke point for where you actually can just shut down, grind things to an absolute halt. Like, for instance, yeah. if you can't get a cab out of JFK yeah. or like they shut down the air train in and out of JFK because so many people came there. It's a there. port. Yeah, it's exactly. We were shutting down the ports. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, yeah, I mean, airports are incredibly important for like the, you know, maintenance of a global economy and just transit and transport in America. Yeah. And they're very easy to shut down is what we learned. Yeah. They're not that big. Yeah. Right now, though, Um, we're at a real interesting point, though, because so it's a day later and people were a lot of people were released from custody last night. And over the over the over overnight, but now we're finding out that at uh, at least a couple of airports, including Dulles, uh, people are being held in contravention of a court order and are not being allowed to see lawyers in contravention of court order. The border patrol is literally ignoring federal court orders right now. And yeah. are people going to go back out? Because I think that like these slugs, like Bannon in the White House, they have. I think they have. Putting all this stuff out right away is part of a plan. They're hoping that they can get everybody riled and they will. there will be a big spike in protests that they can ride out, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then when everyone's sort of demoralized and tired uh, and goes back to their day-to-day lives, they can just push the rest of their agenda with minimal opposition. So this today, I think, is going to be an incredibly important day. I don't know what's going to happen yet. It's still early. But we've got people still being held at these airports literally in contravention of of the rule of fucking law are people going to go back out today are people going to stop things today are people going to make sure that these people are also released yeah, and if th- they aren't that's that shows that maybe their their strategy is going to work but if they are then maybe we're entering a new model where people realize that this sort of on-the-spot activism is going to have to be a part of their daily existence and not just sort of a periodical mm-hmm. public event. Yeah. Yeah, it needs to happen, like, basically everywhere all the time. Like, J- like JFK needs to be the model going forward for everything because it's not going to – like, you know, this is like the, the starting gun mm-hmm. is what they're going to do to, you know, refugees and people from these seven countries or whatever. But mm-hmm. – the end goal is everyone else, and they're coming after, you know, abortion. They're coming after other minority groups too. Like yeah. they're going to try to do all of it, and just things like this need to just keep happening in response to it. Yeah. And I will say, as awful as they are, I think it's also important to note that even a snake like uh, Governor, our Governor Cuomo here had to come out in support of these protests, or some asshole like Cory Booker. Yeah. As, as much as I hate him. And we should not trust him at all. Yeah. Uh, good. 
I mean, if, if they feel that they need to be seen or need to take a stand on this, yeah. then we have to force them to do so because, I mean, they're the ones that have some element of power, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not fooled, but I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and we, we have to keep that in mind because, again, we're going to need huge numbers of people and it's going to be that much easier when people with some amount of power are are not, at the very least, not in our way. Although, did you see the Hillary... <laughs> Well, she tweeted in support. Oh my god! <laughs> She's like, "I stand with everybody here." It's like not not physically because I'd pass out. Yeah, and, you know, I have too many diseases. <laughs> I people get sick in airports anyway. Yeah. it would be she would be typhoid. She would, Mary. Just, she would have to just come in like like a tank of Purell, like one of the Dune navigators. <laughs> one of her uh, comms dorks from the campaign tweeted that. The, the courthouse where the stay, the federal stay had been issued, was across the street from the Hillary campaign office. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, ooh, yeah. You know, and, I, and I believe that he also included the fight goes on or whatever. And it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It's like the fight of which Hillary Clinton has been completely absent from. Yeah, yeah. You know? And complicit. In. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. We have these uh, worthless uh, political figures who are going to basically have to be forced into doing what, what needs to be done. Uh, but that but they also have to be not pr- just pressured on action, but there needs to be, while this is building, and obviously this is the very beginning of something, there has to be a significant movement towards establishing a countervailing idea. It can't be what the Bush administration uh, opposition was, which was just that guy and his policies are bad. Yeah. yeah, because then well, that it leaves was, you for a position like a total charlatan like Obama to roll in, right? And yeah, just and and, to, like, and put- one of the reasons that you know uh, the right wing has been so successful over the last thirty or forty years is moving the center with them. So it like in this 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 kind of what we are hoping for, like a kind of mass popular front against these awful people, it, it can't be like this idea that we could just get it back to the status quo because that sucked already and it led us to this point. It has to be, like we've talked about before, a larger positive vision of a different future, not just the way things were before yeah. things got this fucked up. Because, yes, again, exactly. it's a war of attrition, and I think Matt's right. I think their their strategy is to just wear people down until they just can't fight anymore. And... If, frankly, we need stronger institutions and stronger security for people. We can't just, we can't, we will run out of energy mm-hmm. if we, we can't be at the airport all the time. I mean, that was a lot of the failure of Occupy is that, you know, it wasn't building anything external. I mean, I think it tried to, but it was too diffuse or whatever. But there's going to be another, an, another executive order and another and another and another. Mm-hmm. And... And I just think, like, I was also thinking... We need a good offense mm-hmm. and not just a defense. And I was also thinking about, like, the, the, the you know, Democrats and, and liberals and the, 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 the normies that are coming out to these these protests, which is, an unvarn- you know, unqualified, a, a, a positive sign. Yeah. And I, I think what we welcome I, I hope people are realizing is that, like, for 30 or so years now, at least as long as I've been alive, like... The American liberal project and like the Democrats in general have tried to have this bargain where they would be the party of tolerance and, you know, inclusion in this kind of greater American project while defending neoliberal economics. 
and that's over. You can't do that anymore. It's either you're going to be the party of anti-racism and the party of like the redistribution of wealth and power in this country. Because yes. if you're doing the other, then you're absolutely enabling and helping the rise of, you know, a very frightening kind of uh, nationalism. And because as has been pointed out, like all of the stuff that they're doing right now, it's they're going to point to precedents set by the Obama administration when they defend this shit in court. Like these are all these are all processes that are underway that they are just accelerating yeah. to a rate that people aren't used to seeing. And the good news about that is for people of uh, a sort of liberal sensibility, of which there are, I would say, probably the majority of people in this country. If, they, if you believe so much in these things, like being tolerant of uh, other races or gay people or whatever, there's nowhere else for you to go, right? They're not going to start voting Republican because yeah. the taxes get raised or we have universal health care or we start pushing for these sort of broad socialist goals. They have nowhere else to go. Yeah. So like that, that's we, our that's to our advantage. I think we can scoop them up. I mean, that's the work we have ahead of us. Mm -hmm. Felix went to JFK last night. He did. He's not with us now. Uh, I'd like to talk to him in the future about what he saw there. Uh, apparently, if it's Sunday, obviously you're not going to listen to this today. But people are going to Battery Park today, um, making um, signs. Yeah, Amber's making signs. But uh, I don't know. Like I said, uh, there's going to be more and more of this stuff. There has to be more and more of this stuff. Um, and just, uh, it's good and it, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. And, and like, I don't think like it's, we, don't we, be afraid to, to, to be excited by it or to yeah. have fun with it because oh, yeah, it's gonna something new fun. is I mean, happening. It's going to be a, it's going to be a fucking like major part of your life. If it's a fucking drain, if it's, if it's, if it's a, if it's a chore, then it's more, if that's makes it that much more likely that you're going to get sick of it and you're going to peter off and they're going to get to do whatever the fuck they want. Yeah, it has to be. A, it you has to be a to, source of joy and self-assertion and all of that good stuff. It yeah. has to be something you look forward to. Yeah, and like I hate the neoliberal language of self-care and all that bullshit. But you have to actually maintain friendships and keep a social life and enjoy yourself because that has historically been a huge problem on the left. I mean, you meet these old burnt out activists and they're miserable and asocial and, and it's because they, you know, worked for 20 years failing as a salt on some steel factory floor or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's blisteringly difficult work. You have to enjoy your life or you're not going to be a very good organizer. And, um, my closing thought is just that I was, um, just immensely overjoyed by what I saw happening at JFK because it was spontaneous, it was effective, and it was just, I don't know, it's like I, I really feel it's its what we need right now. Yeah. Yeah, we're on our way. And there's, there's a labor component. That's, we need that. Mm -hmm. People are, are getting that. It, it, it can't just be protest. You have to, you know, hold people's daily lives hostage. And yeah, here's the other thing. Like, who is going to be the first of these customs agents or air TSA people or people in the bureaucracies of the federal government who are just going to say no, either mm -hmm. silently in their job, like do it anonymously so they can get away with it or just quit. I mean, like this is a, a dilemma that you so think I was saying. Be defectors? I don't know. TSA, man, they're not like the police. They're not as cultish. Mm -hmm. I don't think in their kind of indoctrination and hiring process, but they are fed that line. I mean, whatever they're, they're sky cops. <laughs> yeah. I was just sort of like thinking out loud the other day. And look, I don't really know what I'm doing. Like I'm not like a 
organizer or revolutionary, but like my thought was like we need to just start encouraging federal employees and bureaucrats to just like not do their job, to sabotage their new bosses, to mm-hmm. just sort of low-key non-compliance or passive resistance. And you, what, you can lose traders? your job very easily doing that. And like someone made the point, well, like this will only just move the government further to the right because they'll be replaced with even more loyal, you know, functionaries or whatever. But at the same time, I think we need some kind of public Someone losing their job or just quitting or just mm-hmm. being, no, I can't do this. A, a few traitors, like, can be a very powerful thing. A few defectors, mm-hmm. you know, like, we've we've seen that with, like, I mean, they're whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen and that once be again, very thanks effective. to Obama for now uh, running one of the most anti-whistleblower uh, administrations in American history and yeah. formalizing all of the uh, legal means with which to crack down on dissent from within inside yeah. the government or any of these agencies. Yeah. So thanks, thanks again, Obama. A literal and unironic thanks, Obama. <laughs> yeah. With dripping with sarcasm. Oh, so again, uh, we're going to be covering or talking about more of this stuff as it happens. Uh, I just would encourage everyone to just add, you know ask yourself what you can do, or you know what line you're willing to cross, or be with other people who believe the same thing you do. Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the segue now into our original topic we're going to talk about is uh, a book about sort of neoliberalism and the kind of this neoliberal end of history by Mark Fisher called Capitalist Realism. And I think the thought, like he the, he describes, Amber, I think you should talk, you should sort of introduce it, but like I'll say like he introduces the concept of capitalist realism as this kind of end of history sensibility in which it is considered unrealistic to even imagine an alternative to uh, the economic order and society in, in which we live. And I think the segue is, are we beginning to see people imagining that different world? <clears throat> well, Fisher was an incredibly prescient writer, first of all. The first time I had ever read anything by him, even though I knew he had a blog called K-Punk that was very popular with a certain um, kind of pop left intellectual things, but I had never read it. But he had this essay called uh, Exiting the Vampire's Castle. You can Google it, by the way. It's on uh, the North Star, I think. It's short. And it came out, let's see here, 2013, in November of 2013. And he was one of the first people to say, hey, I think maybe some of these identity politics are um, actually being used to, uh, how shall we say it, uh, dishonest ends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This might be a little cynical. He wrote that in in 2013, and he wrote it in response to, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, uh, but this was when Russell Brand was interviewed by Jeremy Paxman on British television. And like Jeremy Paxman is, I guess, their sort of... Tim Russert, I, I guess like he, he's the guy who interviews politicians and celebrities and, and like his shtick is making them look foolish or, you know, pointing out some hypocrisy in past quotes yeah. or whatever. He's this sort of like this very uh, Being serious clever. sort of, yeah. yeah, like, you know, uh, he is the, uh, the discourse, as it were. Right. And he tried to pull it on Russell Brand to be like, well, who are you a celebrity to tell people about yeah. socialism or whatever? And Brand absolutely got the better of him in that interview. Yeah. If anyone wants to, you can look it up. I'm sure it's on YouTube. But It's super fun it and also really funny fun because funny. I think he expected Russell Brand to be very stupid. Yeah. Which is always funny when someone expects someone to be stupid and they're very quick and witty. So yeah. it's 
fun to watch. It is. I, I loved watching it, and Brand absolutely got the better of him, and he had no idea what to make make of it. Right. And what and the thing he had no idea what to make of is how sincere Brand got by the end of it. Yeah. Because he's used to talking to people like you know British politicians or whatever who are just have talking cynical monsters and, yeah. and don't really believe in anything. All pedophiles. Yeah. <laughs> all pedophiles. Um, so I saw that, and uh, this is God. This is before I even knew you, Amber. And I yeah, remember yeah. reading this this article, and I'm glad we we came back to it. But the article is written in response to the response to Brand. Yeah, when people ostensibly on the left begin <laughs> critiquing him for what being sexist or something. Yeah, because he would like call women birds or yeah. lorries or whatever. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, he actually wrote a really good response to it too. That was like, I don't think I'm sexist. I mean, maybe I am, but I think I'm just sort of using you know working class vernacular. Um, and you know. Could have been a very interesting conversation about how, you know, gender is in many ways more emphasized for working class people or in some ways less emphasized, depending on your sort of professional strata. But it didn't turn into that. It turned into like Russell Brand is like a piece of shit sexist and nothing he says will ever be useful. Um, So Fisher wrote uh, a what I, I think a, a very good response to it and a very good response to the kind of emerging libidinal discourse, I believe is what he called it at the time, which is basically like Twitter freakouts and like struggle sessions and these uh, ridiculous pylons, which still concern me today, even though they're out of Vogue, mm-hmm. but I, I think they still happen. Here, let me just quote from this piece. He says, uh, I've noticed a fascinating magical inversion projection disavowal mechanism whereby the sheer mention of class is now automatically treated as if that means one is trying to downgrade the importance of race and gender. In fact, the exact opposite is the case, as the vampire's castle uses an ultimately liberal understanding of race and gender to obfuscate class. And, and he wrote this in 2013, which seems like ancient fucking history now, which is yeah. terrifying as well. And it was insane how furious people got with him. Because, specifically because, like, one, like, reading this, I, I remember being very skeptical of this essay at the time, like, oh, it's not that bad. But I agreed with some of it. Um, but reading it now, it's like, oh, shit, he was absolutely 100% right about everything. <laughs> that the reaction to him was so visceral because I think he exposed a lot of these people for being whatever, liberal Trojan horses or just plain narcissists or unhinged. I mean, there are quite a few kind of there's a, there's a lovely kind of quilt of of uh, motivations behind uh, mm. you know, this kind of liberal red baiting. But Amber, could you, could you talk a bit about how his critique of uh, moralism as 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 a means for discussing these things and and how it sort of damages solidarity. Uh right. <laughs> Could I? Um <laughs> Yeah, uh he, I hate to just like read these excerpts or whatever, but you know, he uses this metaphor of this gothic metaphor of the vampire's castle or whatever. It's frankly a very weird metaphor, but once you read it, it makes more sense. Um, but the problem with the vampire's castle was set up to solve this. How do you hold immense wealth and power while also appearing as a victim, marginal and oppositional? The solution was already there in the Christian church. So the vampire castle has recourse to all the infernal strategies and dark pathologies and psychological torture instruments, which were described by Nietzsche in the genealogy of morals. 
Um, the priesthood of bad conscience, this nest of pious guiltmongers, is exactly what Nietzsche predicted when he said that something worse than Christianity was already on the way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's uh, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's twi- Twitter is the answer to that. But like he, at the end of the piece, he lays out these sort of laws of the vampire castle, and I think we should go through them because I think they're. Uh, an interesting way to view uh, a lot of the annoying shit that we've talked about in the past of these kind of false critiques of the left or whatever from, you know, liberal. Disingenuous Yeah, these sort of disingenuous critiques. He says, the first law of the vampire's castle is individualize and privatize everything. And he says, while in theory it claims to be a favor in favor of structural critique, in practice it never focuses on anything except individual behavior. Which is so obvious now. Yeah, it's, it's just, like you know, tweet searching something, or you know, it, it, it's absurd. Like you see it all the time. You know the foundation of someone's politics, and you see someone look up an offhand comment or a weird joke or whatever, and it's like, well, how can we stand in solidarity with this person? It's like because you know who they are and what they believe. You don't have to personally like them. That's mm-hmm. the great thing about socialism. That's why it has more uh, political coherence than, say, anarchism, because it doesn't rely on relationships. Yeah, but again, it, I, I can't emphasize enough, like, the tone of the essay being... Like, he was not anyone in this room. He was not, like, a Chapo-style guy. He was giving, like, this very, like, gentle, sweet critique... That, like, revolted people and terrified them, I think, because he exposed, like, this very nasty kind of disingenuous critique. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I mean, like, the—we'll link to the piece, but, like, the other laws are just basically about, uh, you know, this sort of—it's all about this tone of scolding, being against humor— you know, make a guilt as like a means for like the you know discussing other people's motivations and privilege and mm-hmm. things like that, and sort of essentializing identity over everything, which makes basically doing or talking about anything impossible. Yeah, and it culminates in like the final law: think like a liberal because you are one. Yeah. Moving on from there to to his book, which is like a, a bigger thesis statement mm-hmm. about. It is, however, only like eighty pages. Well, that's what I was going to say <laughs> for fans of the show. If you're like me, you will enjoy this book because. A, it's 80 pages long, and B, mostly blissfully free of the kind of academic and Marxist jargon that I find to be, uh, turns my brain into soup, basically. Yeah, there's a touch. I mean, like, I read no Deleuze, but uh, it's nothing that I had to do any extensive research oh, on yeah, or whatever. Oh, yeah, exactly. Also, he uses pop culture, yes. but he uses the pop culture of adult humans. Mm-hmm. Which is great. He talks about James Elroy in the second chapter. <laughs> so this is like, okay, this is extremely my, my type of shit. But I think that the first example that he uses to talk about this kind of end of history, no future, kind of like dead end mindset is the phenomenon of remakes and like movies and things like that, that we're and absolutely seeing being accelerated right now. This idea that we as a culture are just like, not even creating anything new anymore. We're just re-digesting things that we've already things that have already happened and things that we've already done. Which, when it happens on this kind of mass scale now and becomes a mode of Hollywood industrial production, I think it does become kind of terrifying in a way. There, yeah. It does take on a kind of apocalyptic cant. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like artistic cynicism. Um, it's like, well, what could we don't. It's just this uh, torpor, and 
entertainment, which is what it is, not art, has become so mechanized. Um, and I don't know. There's probably an app that writes all these movies anyway or rewrites all of these remakes anyway. Um, it, that It's not even like there's anything particularly inspiring uh, to look at on the horizon, uh, which is strange because generally in times of, of um, you know, extreme, uh, like, historical inequality, um, we tend to think of them as times of... of uh, of sort of renaissance, you know? Yeah. But that's, I, I think, at least seemingly uniquely, not the case at all right now. Well, that's why what was struck me reading it is his very first example, the first thing he talks about, is the movie Children of Men, and how yeah. it's evocation of sterility as the overriding uh, sort of cultural reality, like the metaphor. And I found that, like, very recognizably true. Uh, he talks about it being unique from other post-apocalyptic movies, uh, like in that way. And it's like, no, there are still like coffee shops. Things are still running fine. Nothing has come to an end. Like society is still functioning. Oh, yeah. It's just terrible. It, yes, we don't have. A, we don't necessarily have a dictatorship. You know, it could. It could very well be a, a, a superficially democratic government running things. And, and if you think about that movie, and one of the things Quran uh, does so amazingly is the fact that like the whole movie is like several very, very long shots. I think there's only about 78 or so edits in mm. the movie. So you're sort of following Clive Owen through this near future. And in these long shots, you're just sort of seeing his perspective. But all of the real horror is just sort of at the periphery of your perception, like as the viewer – by a Clive Owen, you just get out of a train station, you walk through it, and there are just cages of refugees that you only see for like a couple seconds. Yeah, but they're there, and it's just sort of in the periphery. It's just sort of just just on the edge of your perception that you kind of edit out walking down the street of an urban environment. Yeah, which we do that every movie, day here in New York. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I honestly, when I I saw it in the theater, and it's the still to this day the only movie where like I had. I honestly had like a mini nervous breakdown after I saw it. Mm-hmm. I saw it with some friends and I was like, I was just struck dumb for like a half an hour because it just felt like such a condensation of every just hopeless horror that yeah. the current moment had. And this was during the Bush administration, for Christ's sake, which of course now everybody's looking back on fondly. Uh, and <laughs> certainly no so listener that, I, of uh, the, our podcast. No, I would oh, hope yeah. not. I would hope not. But but I, I do feel like that movie more than any other of the 21st century encapsulates the specific hopelessness and and just low level dread uh, that comes with living in a world where there really is no future and even. Even the suggestion that there could be one is met with just derision. Yeah, and that's the whole sort of concept of of capitalist realism. It's and he he, he makes a, a distinction where he's talking about student movements. Um, I think in like chapter four, and he says, by contrast with their forebears in the nineteen sixties and seventies, British students today appear to be politically disengaged. While French students can still be found in the streets protesting against neoliberalism, British students, whose situation is incomparably worse, seem resigned to their fate. But this, I want to argue, is a matter not of apathy nor of cynicism, but of reflexive impotence. 
They know things are bad, but more than that, they know they can't do anything about it. But that knowledge, that reflexivity, is not a passive observation of, of an already existing state of affairs. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And and the other thing that he, the other, other really important point that he makes on early in the more in the, in this book, talking about like what is neoliberalism and and sort of how does it work in our individual and sort of cultural consciousness, is that it doesn't really require. Uh, propaganda in the way that like old forms of control and government do like that even the you know uh reactions to it or against it are part of it in itself like it's it's sort of totally self-sustaining very quickly um you know if you look at advertising as a good example and he does a good job talking about advertising without sounding all ad busters and (laughs) anti-consumerist but he's like you know they've uh, immediately assumed like you know green capitalism like that popped out so quickly and now it's like this tight machine you know uh, which is ridiculous because it's a it's a counterintuitive con- concept that like it, it, it one of the reasons it's so successful and has permeated so much of our lives is how effective it is at sort of absorbing everything it's almost like like a blob concept yeah yeah uh, which is Again, why it's super strange now to see people suddenly snapped into action. Um, But he does sort of warn against when he's talking about the students. And I think he says this not, you know, not dismissively, but he says, so you have French students now and they're protesting against neoliberal cuts and they're using like, you know, 68 slogans, you mm-hmm. know, they're using like radical slogans. He's like, but the only thing they're doing is protesting against cuts. Like, he's like, there's no grand project on the horizon for them. All that they can think of to fight for is keeping things the way they are. And the same went for the trade unions. And so it's, you know, you have French students that, that were in a state of, uh, or, or less of a state of, I guess, um, uh, reflexive impotence than say English students on the whole, but still there was no great ambition. They're not sixty-eight. They're not like you know trying to overthrow the government and, and replace it with something better. The most they can manage to envision is just please don't cut our shit. <laughs> I was hoping um, we talked a little bit about like his the critique that uh, he advances in this book, particularly about <coughs> how we can think about. Um, the, the social roots of mental health phenomenon. And like th- this goes yeah. back to this, this idea of learned impotence, which is a kind of depression, but uh, there's also, you know, addiction, attention deficit disorder, these very common, um, you know, anxiety disorders, things like that. Like increasingly, incre- common. increasingly common and medicated uh, phenomenon. That, the, the sort of demand <laughs> that we have to think about these things in a kind of capitalist context. Or that they are the byproducts of capitalism, basically. Yeah. Fisher uh, struggled with mental health his whole life. And tragically, uh, he died very recently after taking his life. Um, But he wrote incredibly well about it. Um, And there's actually, there's one, my favorite essay of his is actually called Good for Nothing. And I, it's kind of like a... Like a fail son ethos, <laughs> it has sort of like his his analysis of his depression, uh, 
written up within like a you know an analysis of, of capitalism but there's this one line where he said um uh, my depression was always tied up with the conviction that i was literally good for nothing i spent most of my life up until the age of 30 believing that i would never work in my 20s i drifted between postgraduate study periods of unemployment and temporary jobs in each of these roles i felt that i didn't really belong in postgraduate study because i was a dilettante who had somehow faked his way through not a proper scholar in unemployment because i wasn't really unemployed like those who were honestly seeking work but a shirker and in temporary jobs, because I felt I was performing incompetently, and in any case, I didn't really belong in these officer factory jobs, not because I was too good for them, but, but very much to the contrary, because I was overeducated and useless. Even when I was on a psychiatric ward, I felt I was not really depressed. I was only simulating the condition in order to avoid work, or the infernally, or in the infernally paradoxical logic of depression, I was simulating it in order to conceal the fact that I was not capable of working, and that there was no place at all for me in society." I think that describes the way a lot of people feel. It's certainly, I mean, like, I, yeah. I, I would never I was as depressed as he was, but that definitely describes my 20s in a lot of ways. Yeah, oh, I yeah, ended up... it's very familiar. I ended up quoting him because someone, like, wrote me for your sorry ass, my advice column. They're like, I have realized that I I can't, I can't work in an office. Like, I, like, they're like, I literally can't do it. It's like, you know, grinding, um, you know, work that I'm doing poorly at. And... Uh, you know, all wage labor is alienated labor, but like some of it's a lot more alienating than others. Oh, for sure. Um, and this idea of this imposter syndrome where you just feel incompetent and ineffectual and like you can never keep up is again built into this kind of, uh, you know, neoliberal vision of people as like nomads, as like constantly. Uh, justifying their own job. Everybody is an independent contractor yeah, with the yeah. rest of the world. You yeah, know? you're constantly, yeah, and like, you know, that's hence the acceleration of all these temporary jobs. I mean, he talks about like, you know, precariat is like, like, I agree, a stupid word, especially since it just describes most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he talks about like uh, people being jostled around from job to job and how it really wears on you and you literally start to think that maybe you're just not meant for work. And we kind of aren't in the way that work exists now. Like it's not good for people. No. Everyone's sick and miserable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what, yeah, we know we need, we need less of it. I've, I've said that many times before on this show. We need, less work, we need man. Uh, less work for more <laughs> money is, uh, that's 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 my credo. Yeah, I think that's that's what we all need. But um, okay, let me let me just read this quote here. He says, "The rejection of identitarianism can only be achieved by the reassertion of class. A left that does not have class as its core can only be a liberal pressure group. Class consciousness is always double. It involves a simultaneous knowledge of the way in which class frames and shapes all experience, and a knowledge of the particular position that we occupy in the class structure." Right. But also, I mean, there's arguments whether or not class constitutes an identity or something. But like, if you're talking about consciousness being an aspect of it, I think there is an argument that you do, it does need to be some kind of identity, like in the sense, I'm a worker, but it's a material identity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not necessarily political or, you know, whatever, aesthetic, or whatever, it has to do with your relationship to power. Um, which is defined by capital, <laughs> right? Going back to to to, to, to JFK, 
and 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 our current moment that we're living in that 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 seems uh you know dire in a way that you know uh i haven't i haven't felt before even though things were fucked up before and like you always fall into the trap of being like someone can always just say oh like well didn't you notice this before like and yeah those people are shitheads by the way yeah like i i you should definitely be saying to liberals who are just now figuring out how bad things are, it's like, well, you know, some of this stuff actually came through with Obama, but like the whole, where were you? Like, shut the fuck up. No one needs that shit. You're not organizing anyone. You're just alienating people. Your job is to be radicalizing liberals, not making them feel like shit. Yeah, not being a, not being a scold and a tattle. Yeah, and also, you know? no one likes a fucking tattle. The answer of where were you is the same for both the person being asked and the person asking, which is posting. We were online, never logging off. You were all online. Nobody was doing anything. Everyone was posting. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) But I mean, like, you know, he he was talking about the students. And it's interesting because we've moved from being like, you know, the English students who have neither an offense nor a defense because they've internalized just the pure inevitability of capitalism. Um, uh, the the that Francis Fukuyama end of mm-hmm. history thing where it's like nope this is our final form you know which is which makes no sense at all because like what what would you like industrial capitalism was around since like the 18th century like it's like a blip it's it's a blip in history we had so many more political systems before that that went on much longer it's absurd to think of capitalism as an inevitability but it's especially neoliberal capitalism is it's it's so good at convincing us without even any active propaganda like you said before that like well this is it this is our final form right because and this is a thing that he talks about so well in the book it's so diffused there aren't like centers of control emanating downward yeah. throughout society and that's that that structure creates oppositional frameworks in the mind. Like yeah. if there's well, the refugees, a fucking, if there's a guy in a castle, you can go in the castle and drag him out realistically. And so just that very, the geography of it makes, makes rebellion and change and something else viable to imagine. If it's all invisible, if it's all basically like, as he says in the book, like a parasite in our minds and it's not located in a physical space, separate from us, then it becomes very difficult to conceive of any alternative. Yeah. Because who are you going to attack? You can't, you can't find, yeah, you can't find the king. We have no kings. God, it was great when we had kings. You could just kill the king. (laughs) Well, and and this goes back to what I said uh, on the pre-taped call-in show, is that like the word, uh, you know, neoliberalism is being used more and more, and it is very hard to define it. Like, it is this very vaporous term that can... Mm come to mean something similar to things I don't like yeah, in yeah. the current political system, which is useful in a way, but like, what is a, what is a more rigorous way of, of thinking about it? Do you have an idea or is there, is it, does Fisher, like, what, is there something he can offer? I mean, Fisher uses uh, David Harvey's um, definition of neoliberalism, uh, I believe, which I like a lot and some people have sort of objections to. Um, but I do like David Harvey. He helps me. He re- follows the Chapo Trap House Twitter account. What? So, yeah. He follows me. He follows Marks me personally. Yeah. We should have him on. I love the idea that he's seeing my tape playing Obungo jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's happening. 
Uh, well, by the way, you can if you ever want to read Capital because it's like very big and hard. Um, but he has Capital Volume One. His lectures are available online for free. Um, and Is that a good way of like reading Capital without actually reading it? Because I'd be interested <laughs> it, in doing that. It, it actually, you could probably get it without reading it just yeah. by listening to Hardy. Oh, okay. He's very good. That's at even it, yeah. better. You could get the general gist of it. <laughs> But uh, so, yeah, uh, Fisher uses Harvey's definition where we uh, said the persistent association of neoliberalism with the term restoration favored by both Badiou and David Harvey is an important corrective to the association of capital with novelty. For Harvey and Badiou, neoliberal politics are not the new, but a return of class power and privilege. In France, Badiou has said, Restoration refers to the period of the return of the king in 1815 after the revolution of Napoleon. We are in such a period. Today we see liberal capitalism and its political system, parliamentarianism, as the only natural and acceptable solutions. Harvey argues that neoliberalization is best conceived of as a political project to reestablish the conditions of capital accumulation to restore the power of economic elites. So basically we've acknowledged that Class war, and Harvey's big line with this is that neoliberalism is the period like uh, where class war is only being waged by uh, by the capitalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, labor is Come, sputtering way, on like, the map. Coming out of a reaction to like the middle 20th century, yeah. uh, you know. When la- there were these projects that this, were fighting yeah. against capital and everything, and there were these major movements and now just sputtering on the mat. Now we're all like, you know, at best, these French students just fighting to hold on to, you know, what little gains we have and losing, of course, um, because we don't have an alternative uh, project that we're pushing through. We have no we have no offense. We have only defense. The defense is pathetic and losing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I think neoliberalism, it turns historically uh, is post us losing Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, organized labor. I mean, there are projects like you know the nurses have always been pushing for socialized healthcare and everything, but like it's not a formidable offense that working people have. And they used to have this growing project that was very promising, and it just we lost, which happens a lot. I'm not going to be like, oh, there was some horrible. Um, it's just like no, the capitalists were bigger and stronger, and they were faster, and they outsmarted us, and. And now we need to. And now they've, you know, there's retrenchment and and they they won and we're not doing anything except trying to get air and we have to have a new project because it's just it's not going to work being at the airport every single fucking day fighting these because it's just going to be another executive order and another and another. Do you think that that this neoliberal? I mean, like there's sort of there's a right and a left wing to neoliberalism. Again, this is why yeah. it's sort of sort of so successful is because it can. It can fit into any shape. Like you know? a sponge. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's a right wing or technically uh, – like or labor government, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's definitely – it's much more obvious in, in the UK um, and following their politics is extremely upsetting <laughs> because, you know, they have a quote-unquote labor party. But they're trash. They're total trash. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of like, you know – uh, fighting against this or, or thinking about like how you as personally like fit into this like like how do you know that like you're, that you're living embedded in this or that you're being I, I always just think of like 
How do we the, put on the, the they or, live or just glasses? Like the, yeah, the they live. But I always just think of like all of the the subtle and not so subtle ways in which we're sort of encouraged to think about ourselves as these sort of individualized, atomized nodes in this yeah. big grand system where like everybody's totally free yeah. to just to just, you know, live up to their creative potential and do whatever they want, but just completely alone. Yeah, we're all and, just nomads <laughs> yeah. and like, you know, living in tent cities. It's great. It's it's freeing. <laughs> <laughs> and that maybe a way you think that you're doing something different than that is doing something in a in solidarity, in a, in in a group. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think people do want to imagine something themselves to be working toward like a larger noble project. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and there are quite a few sort of options for that. Um, But I mean, solidarity is 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 a pretty powerful thing. And the idea that, again, like I don't want to reduce class to identity. Um, because it is a ma- material relationship to power. Um, but class consciousness, it can keep you going, and it can be helpful because we're all sick and 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 bored and miserable and terrified all the time. <laughs> um, it can be helpful to keep in mind that, like, this is because, you know, we're being ground into dust by, by our precarity and by the horrible things that we're not able to fight against because we don't have political institutions. And most importantly, it's not your fault if you feel like it's not some yeah. it's not some dysfunction in you personally. Like yeah. they, they, like all these things are could be are, are rational responses to the the, the conditions. Yeah, that, it would that be insane if in. you were extremely mentally healthy. If you were like you know trying to get by on thirty hours a week, and then also you know search for another job that would give you full time so that you could get health insurance and, you know, worried about your Obamacare fucking premiums. And like, wait, that's, that's crushing your very human brain. That's a horrible amount of stress. There's nothing stable about it. And it's difficult to think of anything else, honestly. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I, I think if we ride this kind of surge of action forward and, present new ideas and new demands and, you know, start to the very hard, boring work of building new institutions, I think we could get up off the mat. I think that uh, we could we could exceed just having a good uh, defense. Because at this point, too, I think we've realized, like, a, a defense just doesn't work either. Like, we've, we're losing ground. We can't – nothing is safe. All even you know like with the the bastions of a of a social welfare states you know Scandinavia they're they're experiencing neoliberalism too mm-hmm. like they're having cuts like nothing is safe we need something bigger and you know which is the uh, sort of the opportunity presented by the the, the how terrifying uh, our government is right now because as I said before they're they're coming for all of it. Yeah. They're coming for everything. We know what they want to do, which is basically just massively accelerate the just upward redistribution of wealth yeah. and power to them and people like them. And the only way they can do that is by taking away everyone else's rights because at some point people aren't going to stand for it. And believe me, they're already going to try to massively restrict the franchise before the next election and many other democratic rights and they're going to go after many other uh, minority groups and basically everyone who's yeah. not them 
And I guess that's that's the the, the sort of that's the the thrilling part of all this is that you know we have no other choice but to but to stop them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I said it online last night while I was watching this shit go down. One way or the other, this is going to be a qualitatively different country very soon. But the, and that's scary, but it's also exhilarating because which way it goes is it's in our hands. It can be. Yeah. And that there's a, that things are thing, different. Something new and different is happening for better or worse. Like we, we are not in a static end of history yeah. anymore. History yeah. is absolutely happening right now. And the thing is, we do have power. We're most of the people. We work the jobs. We do the things. And here's a, here's another really important point. And Matt, I think I think you said this the other night when we were talking about it. Like, you know, there's the people who voted for Trump and whatever, fuck them. But the, the, the sort of like this 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 ban on refugees and Muslims. Like, I really think this only really excites about twenty five percent of this country, who are, yeah. for lack of a better the word, ch- the evil chud, people, the chud yeah. base, the, like the just the, the most- chud contingency. The most that, like horrifically atavistic, like lizard brain scumbags this country has to offer. And the terrifying thing but is they that they now have minority. control. They, they are the but minority, they are but they have control of like every lever of power and of like yeah. in the most powerful state in the world. But yeah. they are a minority. They're old. They're weak. They're cowards. And I think we we can beat them. Yep. Yeah. Fuck them. Yeah. Fuck them I mean, I, like it's it's my humanist impulse to presume the goodness of us in general, uh, you know, on a macro level, mm-hmm. um, provided we could build the political institutions that de-incentivize our absolute worst impulses, which are always lying in our lizard brains. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, you have to figure out who can be swayed and which Nazis have to be punched in the head. <laughs> As uh, as the Dane says in Miller's Crossing, Matt, for starters. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Again, like what the numbers are going to be. I mean, you say a quarter. I have no idea. It is it is the Chud contingency. Like I have no idea who we're actually going to be fighting. I do think, and I'm not an acceleration by accelerationist by any means, but I do think. As people are starting to be horrified by, like, the just total swindle of Donald Trump's campaign, at least there's going to be fewer people in our way. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe they're not going to join us in the streets, but uh, I don't think they're going to – they're not going to take to they're the streets on be behalf of Donald Trump. Of yeah. They will, well, yeah, I think, like, a good chunk of his – of the people who supported him are just going to, like, be demoralized. Yeah. Which is good. The disenfranchisement of the judge will work to our <laughs> Yes, yeah. absolutely. What do you say? Is it, you think that's a good place to, to wrap things up? We've done an hour. Yeah. You guys asked for reading recommendations. I give you something that's 80 pages. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an, an easy, easy grader. I'm, a, I'm an easy grader. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a soft touch. I think uh, you don't have to do a ton of work. It's got a lot of movie references. And honestly, like, Fisher's a really um, entertaining and concise writer – uh, and he didn't ramble in any way that gets like boring or jargony. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, ca- capitalist realism by Mark Fisher. Mm-hmm. Will, will you can get it through zero. Yeah, um, and it's great. And sh- and check out K Punk his old writings. Read. Uh, he's got some stuff 
still up on North Star, um, and and yeah, just a really great mind, um, and a, by all accounts, a really wonderful person who will be missed very dearly. And yeah, and I think if you read him, he will. I think he will articulate a lot of the kind of vague feelings that we all feel. Yeah, you will recognize yeah, yourself in yeah, his absolutely. writing. Um, uh, and he's smarter than us. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. That's what we need. <laughs> All right, guys. Amber and Matt, thanks so much for uh, doing this bonus episode. Yeah. Cheers, guys. We'll Good talk times. soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.